1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Bernardo Batislaso for New Books Network. And in this podcast, our guest today is uh, Ashley Sweetman, who uh, works in cybersecurity for a London-based global bank and holds a PhD from the Department of War Studies at King's College London. While studying his PhD, he spent a short time as a researcher in residence at number 10 Downing Street while working for the Strand Group in the Policy Institute at King's. Before this, Ashley studied history at Queen Mary University of London. Ashley is a proud Welshman and has and was brought up in Neath, South Wales. He currently lives in London and recently published his first book, Cyber and the City Securing London's Banks in the Computer Age. Ashley, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Bernardo, great to be here. Um, Thank you, Ashley. Well, um, so, as where where we usually start with our uh, conversations is that uh, we ask uh, you to tell us a little bit about um, how you became a historian, how you became an academic, because also from your LinkedIn page we could see that you had some other um, activities before coming into academia. So tell us how, how was it that you decided to study a, a PhD after UBA, uh, your, your bachelor's degree?
0: And Of course, yeah so I think um, my sort of break if you like was um, after I did my undergraduate degree in, in history I won a scholarship to study for my master's Um, at Queen Mary University of London for something called the Myland Group um, which is now known as the Strand Group Um, and that was essentially an organisation which brought um, practitioners from government into uh, the university for teaching and research purposes and I think it was that practical element of academia or that approach to academia that I really enjoyed Um, and from there I was fortunate enough um, that was led by somebody called uh, John Davis who then moved to King's College and um i was fortunate enough to win phd funding as well to study uh over at king's and it was this um approach this kind of practical uh pragmatic approach to academia that really excited me and having done a few things alongside it in the sort of public policy space um it seemed like a natural route for me as somebody who'd always been uh, quite a fan of uh, academic work thank you
1: and um how was it that you stumbled on this topic? I mean, I can see how um, cybersecurity would be an issue for for the war group, uh, but how was it that you were interested uh, in looking at it from a historical perspective and taking a long term view of of how the the area had developed, and then looking into the the clearing banks in which is the the, the London banks um, specifically. And sorry, before I let you answer, I think I, I need to clarify for uh, our listeners who are not familiar with the term clearing bank, this meant effectively the six to 10 largest um, banks in London, which around the, 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 the early 20th century, around 1910, basically emerged as the controlling banks or in terms of deposits and they also control very importantly the clearing of payments particularly of checks and other forms of payments and that was a big barrier to enter retail banking for most of the 20th century. So the, the clearing banks, as we will refer to them, were the main participants in, in retail banking. And to some extent, they were they also controlled um, some aspects, although they were different from the merchants and what we today called investment banks, as they were dealing primarily with, with the stock exchange. But they were uh, kind of like at the top of the pyramid so sorry how so how was was it that you were interested in in researching the the clearing banks
0: so I'd done um a lot of contemporary history work during my master's and undergraduate degree actually, and I was sort of interested in security intelligence um and uh central government and through actually conversations with some of those practitioners that I mentioned for some some current and former civil servants and intelligence officials there was you know everybody was mentioned cybersecurity <laughs> it was a particularly um prominent topic in those conversations and I started to do a bit of research and there was a lot being written and said about uh, cyber conflict and debates around you know cyber war um was that even a thing um and there was this kind of military intelligence perspective to it all um but there was less work i guess around co- sort of critical national infrastructure more generally um and quite a few people pointed to this, the kind of civil side was lacking um, in sort of serious research around it. And um, there was one civil servant in particular who said to me, um, who worked in the in central government, kind of said, we aren't really clear on this link between cybersecurity and financial stability or, you know, in particular, what could happen if there was a major attack on one of those major institutions? What would kind of be the ramifications? Um it was you know I started off doing some research along those lines, and it was particularly difficult to get banks to talk on some of those topics even anonymously. but um, as a historian, I sort of went back to I guess my training and uh, and instincts and realized actually in the archives of these banks, there would be quite a lot of material on you know automation, generally technology. Some of the stuff you know that you've looked at, Bernardo, on, on cash machines and general kind of technologization of the sector. Um, and lo and behold, there was quite a lot of stuff in there on security, some pretty technical stuff, some more strategic stuff around their general approach and outlook um, and conceptualization of security. And um, realized then there was quite a good story to tell there about these really important institutions, who are ultimately private institutions, but who operate today and have done for for centuries, the kind of, sorry, for decades, um, some of the critical national infrastructure of, of the country and other countries.
1: Thank you. Look, it, it is indeed a very you know fresh look at the area, both from um, a security perspective, but also from the point of view of the automation of banking in in, in the long term. And it is something that I, I agree with you, security, and, and how how to deal with it is is uh, very important and, and prominent. You, you, you cannot escape it when, when you start looking at all of the stuff around automation. So I was really um, um, happy when I saw your 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 work that, that you were able to conceptualize uh, this and, and bring it together in a single piece of, of work. And now you've answered one of my questions which was you know why didn't you try the interviews and oral histories as part of your your um, uh, discussion and, and you said well it was very difficult to people to to talk to you even in in confidence and it's and and, and I agree with you that some people can be very um, um, uh, particular about that but what was the sort of story that you wanted to tell with this
0: yeah so, I think so I, I did try some of those interviews as as I said and there were a few that were pretty useful but it just turned out that the the archives were so fruitful um that it made sense to to major on those. I guess the story that I wanted to tell, um, having, you know, taken my iPad with me and taken photos of thousands of documents in various archives, was you know, the fact that security and in this case cybersecurity was or computer security, information security is so tied up with the fundamental purpose and uh, existence of banking, it really goes to the core of what people, uh, whether that's individuals or institutions, uh, you know, use banks for. It's all about trust, all about confidence, all about this kind of protection of value. And I guess that is the story that I wanted to tell. Um, on the whole, there are also some, you know, there's just some really quite geeky and interesting stuff in there around automation and tech and old school kind of um hacking stories and i wanted to bring out some of that stuff and some of the people involved you know there is some stuff in the archives which does give you a sense of you know the fact that there were only actually handfuls of experts around who knew this stuff and that there were you know there was a real sort of small quite core group of people who were involved in this in the sector but ultimately i think it was about just how fundamental security is to that trust and confidence that people have in banks to look after and manage their money and information. And that's really what I wanted to bring out in the book. Thank
1: you. Um, yes, I mean, as you were talking, I, I, I remember a
0: couple of anecdotes.
1: I mean, you, you tell the whole story, but uh, on the importance of finance for the national interest and for the infrastructure, I was once told that um, um, the... Um, for different reasons, um, LINK, which is the main switch for ATMs and card payments, ended up in Harrogate. Um, that, that's another story. But at one point, the you know government realized how important this is for national security, and they actually put tanks uh, outside the LINK installations to... To protect it in case of a of an attack, although yeah, this is just just uh, an anecdote, and uh, but you you go into into much more serious um, discussion about this this sort of thing. Um, let, let me make a parenthesis here. And uh, what sort of um, lessons or learning or advice would you give other early career researchers in putting together uh, um, a manuscript? And trying to get their first publication out. How did you go about, you know, thinking about this, choosing the editorial, and the process of putting the the, um, the manuscript together?
0: That's a great question. So I was pretty determined in the first instance to publish the PhD in uh, as close a format as possible to its to the for, yeah to its original format as I could. So I had that in mind when I was looking at publishers. Um, I think it was also you know, a realisation that I would probably write something a bit more popular and a bit less academic after this or in the future. So this was going to be my first kind of big academic piece. I mean, I think the one thing I really have tried to do is to put the documents that i was able to find in the archives at the core of what i've written and i think let them tell a lot of the story themselves um so that is one piece of advice i would give particularly for historians who are dealing with you know documents and archives it's really to sort of let you know a lot of um that content come to the fore and i know that (laughs) publishers and editors have different preferences for block quotations and things like that but sometimes there's just um a real strength i think in letting those documents do the talking for themselves i guess another advice for preparing a manuscript i mean i read it multiple times and i got plenty of other people to help me do that as well and get their feedback and i think it's you know it's always worth asking others for help you know whether that's on kind of smaller practical issues such as spotting uh, spelling mistakes and errors but also just Getting somebody who is related to the topic, but maybe, you know, a few steps away in terms of their expertise or even somebody who's not, you know, who's non-academic, who's just a, a sort of general reader to get a sense for how easy it is to consume what you've written. Um, and I was quite fortunate that the PhD, which ultimately, you know, I'd say it's sort of a lot, a lot of that became the book. Um, I had a more technical cybersecurity kind of supervisor, but then also somebody who was more on the policy side. Um, and that helped me to kind of pitch in the middle and find a way that it was, you know, sufficiently robust on the one hand that the, the cyber um supervisor thought this was credible and, and understandable and providing something new, but also it being understandable to a kind of interested audience because of some of those broader themes, you know, that you mentioned, such as automation and technology, which I think are of wider interest as well so that would be one thing i would consider is is the audience and and in producing the book or a first manuscript um having a good idea of who is going to be the readership and trying to tailor it to to them um i mean i know there can be challenges in um it's a competitive field i think and just publishing a book generally feels um it's quite a um challenging thing to to achieve so i was also very aware of what my topic area was, and there was a series on the history of computing, and it just seemed to be a really good fit for for my work. And uh, in the end, that ultimately I think has worked out pretty well.
1: Good, thank you very much. It is indeed a very good series um, that has been put together by Springer and the uh, and the editors, and um, some some interesting uh, contributions there. So let let us go back to the let's go back to the book and. Um, how did you went about looking for the archives and what sort of surprises were you finding as, as you um, you you have a quite a detailed and very organized list of archives at the at the end of, of the book something that I, I personally would aspire to do. I'm, I'm very disorganized for that so congratulations on 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 that I, I'm certainly going to recommend it to anybody that is doing and on how well you've organized your, your material at the end of the book. But tell us, how, how did you went about
0: looking for this archival material? Yeah, thanks, Bernardo. I think as, as somebody who's generally unorganized, I recognized at the beginning that there was no way I was going to be able to get through this and and do justice to some of that good content without having some organization. But um, the first thing that I re- really did, to be honest, was I recognized that emailing bank archivists who are really lovely, helpful, I mean, super helpful people, but emailing them asking for content on cyber security and encryption and some of these kind of scary terms probably to people who are um, maybe not experts in the topic was not the most uh, productive thing I've, I could do. And I was often being told in, in the politest terms, there was nothing for me to see there. And my approach then was to go for the broader themes, technology, automation, uh, these things that I mentioned. Um, and really, and that, and that paid off. And I think it meant in the end, ultimately, I probably looked at a lot more stuff that I didn't include. And there's actually probably more stuff there I, I could use in the future for other things. But I think, you know, so the, the archives of some of the biggest banks, Barclays, um, NatWest, um, Midland Bank, which is now HSBC, were just super helpful, and they themselves were super organised. So it was really helpful for me to to be able to use the the people there who really knew um, what they held in their collections. Same goes for the Bank of England, where I probably spent most of my time. Actually, um, just a super helpful team of archivists there. Um, my approach really was and I I literally did take photos of pretty much everything and store them in folders, (laughs) labeled in the same way that they would be in the archives, uh, to keep an order on what I was doing. And, and I was um, going through and writing up notes at the same time, um, around what key information was in there. And, you know, in in a pretty simple way, I was doing a lot of this chronologically, where possible, I was trying to piece together a story, um, you know, I think, opportunity and the challenge of of the phd and the book was there wasn't really much else out there which told this story so the opportunity for me was to write this book and and produce this chronological history which hadn't been written in that way before Um, and so i tried to use the archives in a way that would let me do that and what I ended up doing, as you'd have seen in the book, is combining some kind of more general overview chapters with a, couple, uh, a few case studies, um, getting into more detail on some of the payment systems. Um, and so I would often spend time in the archives once I found something, say, on, you know, Matt, the bank were together to create the SWIFT payment system, really doing a bit of a deep dive into that, trying to find everything I could on that. Um and uh, and then writing that work pretty much straight away afterwards. But there are obviously practical considerations as well. And, uh, you know, I couldn't necessarily, be, uh, I think the Barclays Archives is in, in Woodland Shore, just outside Manchester, uh, HSBC is um, in East London. Um, they were, uh, and there was, I think the RBS archives is up in uh, Edinburgh. Um, so I couldn't necessarily visit all of those all of the time, so there were some things to consider there as well around how often I'd be able to visit and just what I'd be able to see each time I went, but I didn't do a lot of work at the time, I would often take a lot of photos and come away and then and then spend a lot of time studying them and, uh, and writing them up. Thank you, and,
1: and this is um, perhaps a very um, geeky question, but it doesn't seem from reading your, your book that you came across the, automa- the the actual archives of the Automation Committee of the clearing banks, and because that would have been central to what you were trying to do, but I guess the answer is no, that they have disappeared and from the face of the earth, and we don't know where they are. Is that correct? Yes, I see you. I think that yes. probably is okay. correct. I so mean, was...
0: it's, it's hard to know what's there and what isn't there and, and, and ultimately, you know, there may be other stuff in storage as well. So that there, there's some, you know, that was also one of the challenges was working out, you know, where the gaps were and being able to say something about those gaps, I guess, yeah. Exactly. Good.
1: Um, you 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 um, organized then the, the, um, the, the content into uh, a very useful uh, introduction and then um, effectively uh, seven chapters uh, plus a conclusion in, in, in total. So um, chapter two, you talk about the, the clearing banks, and then in each of the following chapters, although you, 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 you try to use the first two chapters as an overall introduction and, and themes that are going to come out in the book, then um, you, you have each of the, uh, certainly chapter three, and chapter four around two, well, and, and, and six around um, um, three specific projects: um, backs, swift, and chaps. And that also helps you in a way to move the 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 chronology. Although there is some some overlap at, at the, in the way that backs and 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 swift. Um, came came together. And finally, in, in chapter seven, you, you talk about hacking in in general. So could you tell us a little bit about your thinking on, on how these themes structured around your, your main ideas and how you went out and, and choose this, this uh, specific project?
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, I think it's kind of really, uh, leads to what I was saying earlier around thinking about my audience, but I guess in my mind, I was thinking, almost like a zoom in and zoom out effect. So the the kind of case study chapters on SWIFT, BACs and CHAPs that you mentioned are really zoomed in, really looking at the sort of crunchy stuff almost from the archives, um, really getting into some of the decision-making and the collaboration between the banks on specific systems, mainly because, you know, they're still being used today in, in some form or other SWIFT, you know, the most prominent international payment system. Um, my thinking there was to really get into the mindset of the banks and the individuals who were there at the time taking choices around security, um, you know, some of the trade offs, some of the kind of practical considerations and really getting into that as a whole. And then they're at least in my mind, complemented by those broader overview chapters, which cover a, a sort of longer period of time and and more broad considerations, for example, um what was going on in the political context or even in the international context um what banks were doing generally um you know what was kind of happening in the financial sector in the UK and globally at the time so i thought that was a nice way to really get into some of that quite detailed cyber stuff in those case study chapters um and those are the uh, kind of um longer term themes in the in the overview chapters you
1: you you are uh, ex- very much explicitly um telling how security evolves as as a as a historian as a long term study you're moving from security being something that is physical actual access to the to where the m- old mainframes were stored to the potential of somebody um, you know uh, to the extent that the network is is growing and, and 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 automation is moving out from very specific physical spaces and permeating the 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 banking organization then that risk starts to to grow and for 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 this you 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 create the concept of proportionality so so how is it that you know this move takes place and how is it that this concept of proportionality works
0: so i think um, one of the points i make in the book is almost from the outside outset when the banks purchased their first computers in the late 50s early 60s they realize just how important security is and that's where i think we can trace the origins of, of contemporary cybersecurity and in the financial sector to that that specific time. At first, I think there's a kind of um, immediate sort of knee-jerk response just to, you know, the desire is for significant amounts of security investment, you know, make things as secure as possible. Um, Let's do this because it's so important. And then I think it kind of quite quickly actually emerges that, you know, You're never going to achieve perfect security. There's always going to be some element of risk, and also some of these measures are extremely costly. Um, And so, I think for those organisations, and I think it's partly because you know there's quite a long tradition of sort of risk management and contingency planning in banking. The natural um, fallback, I guess, was to find this equilibrium or find this balance, find this proportionality between you know what you were securing and and what you you know just how important the information was or the store of value was um versus how much it was going to cost to protect it and i think ultimately that plays out in essentially banks becoming um or all kind of adapting to the view that they needed to create uh, disincentives as much as possible they made it make it as difficult as possible for um, malicious actors to be able to either access money, data, you know, auto payment messages, these kind of things. Um, I think they realized, you know, whilst they had a huge amount of resources to invest in it, they couldn't just continue and continue to do that because they were never going to find the perfect answer. So they then started to, I guess, get to a more mature approach, which was, okay, let's secure the things that are really most important to us um, and other things we can kind of deprioritize. And you start to get this kind of natural, yeah, I guess it's a prioritization of, of assets and things that they were going to secure as time goes on.
1: Exactly. I mean, I, I, I agree with you um, uh, um, completely. It's um, the, the way that the uh, practitioner was once summarized what you just described is that there's only all, you know, he some, he said something around the lines of, you know, the, there's always going to be bad guys. There's always going to be people who want to get a hold of where there is money. And it's a never ending war um it's just a question of keeping up with it because we're never it's it's some it's a war that we're never going to win and you know how do we keep up with uh, with this so uh, in in this line of thought what would be the first anecdote or, or or what would be an anecdote or what would be the first instance when you're going into the archives and then realize this is the first time that banks are thinking seriously about uh security other than you know allowing physical access to 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 the site
0: mm-hmm. so i mean just to pick up on a point you said there as well firstly this this story and this kind of we're never going to there's always going to be a bad guy has been essentially the story of banking for centuries if not millennia you know this is just we're looking at a very specific part but i think you know one of the things that the book tries to bring out is that this is there's more continuity than change you know it's it's kind of a in some ways a very specific history of bank robbery um on your specific question so i think there's a lot of um theoretical instances instances where banks initially in in the sort of 60s and early 70s theoretically are saying you know malicious actors could do this they could do that but the first time i think it really gets brought home is um i think it's in the early 70s the bank of england um is installing new computer in, uh, installations and somebody i think in the board um they have kind of external advisors says i've watched this tv program um i think saying essentially that the emanations coming out of a computer kind of radiation could be in theory picked up by somebody who had the right equipment you know and actually quite cheap affordable equipment small equipment you could put in the back of a van which could be parked outside and they could essentially recreate what was on the screens inside the bank on their screen in the in the back of the van parked outside on thread street or um, wherever and i think that's where there was you know some panic (laughs) and it was kind of like okay this you know we've got a lot of computers we might have some thick walls and we might have some good protection but nothing that's actually going to necessarily prevent this Uh, and they get in touch with Um, CESG which is um, part of GCHQ and kind of say we need some help here we need some advice on on ultimately what risk we're holding and uh, there's some back and forth in communications and they start to ask GCHQ ask them some questions about you know the type and classification of information that they're using on those machines and so um, there's some real uh, concern there around you know not just the physical i guess in, in some ways it's a physical security thing but um that is the really the kind of first panic you get um around something that is more akin to uh, to something that is we call cyber today
1: thank you and just for clarification for the non-uk audience uh, uh gchq is the government communications headquarters and that's um the core of the um uh, spy network for the for the uk well surveillance to to make it uh properly and and yes coming back to what you were saying certainly um, um visiting some archives over the, the 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 summer a couple of months ago um came across uh um a trunk a huge trunk it was about two meters uh, long six foot and um it was where they uh you know in a very it, it was one of the early incarnations of of this bank and that's where they kept the money and they had three types of security they had two different locks i mean of course this is a six you know 18 16 18th century trunk so it's all ornate yeah and and uh, but it had two different locks one of them to to fool the thieves and and then the actual one and then inside it where we think they it was added later on to to put the the when they started printing uh, banknotes. There was another one uh, which had its own um, security as well. So you know, keeping keeping uh, keeping access um, is, is essential. Now there there was something about the timing of of this anecdote that that came to mind, and that was that. Um, just before that I've come across uh, um, some discussions around 1968 between the Bank of England and the Federal Bank of New York where um, uh, it's basically the, the New York Bank which is very concerned on not some not so much security but one of the concepts that you use which is integrity the integrity of uh, digital records and how are we moving and in, in the, in the question was specifically how how do we move and how to make sure when we're going to have to do a, a, an audit uh, from physical records you know they, they we we know how the integrity of that takes place but we're moving to uh, a digital space uh, where things can be easily overwritten and um, and we don't have a way to understand or to deal with this lack of integrity of of, of records. So, what what would be your your, your um, thoughts around this? Because the other two concept concept that you bring around uh, um, uh, integrity
0: are confidentiality and availability. Yeah, of course, and, and that confidentiality, integrity, availability, the sort of CIA triad as it's known, is is one of the themes throughout in this part. You know at the core of the way that banks see computer security and, and actually yeah, i think to a large extent is is the same today the integrity point i think was definitely probably the biggest consideration in that switch from the physical to the non-physical so you know in the transfer of for example guilt, there would have been physical certificates beforehand but in the development of payment systems this was becoming electronic the same for swift messages and actually This was a concern, as you've alluded to, in the mid-70s. And as we've seen in recent years with the kind of swift attack and the um, redirection and alteration of payment messages is still a consideration today and, and on a pretty significant scale. And so, yeah, at that time, there was definitely concern around, you know, what processes do we have to ensure that we've um got checks and balances in place. You know, one example I can think of from the archives is around people who were auditing software and what checks and balances were there on ensuring that actually they weren't manipulating the software in a way which you know either benefited them or caused had some kind of destructive or um other impact. And so yeah this you see throughout I think that those three confidentiality, integrity and availability all sort of fluctuate in importance over time compared to each other um and there are definitely points particularly in the 70s and early 80s where the payment systems are being created and messages are being sent electronically which are instructing people to make significant transfers of sums of money um there's a real concern and, and sort of urgency to ensure that they are um they are received in the way that they were meant to be received and received in the way they were sent
1: excellent thank you 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 moving a little bit um forward i i got the impression and and please set me set me right that you rarely mention the attitudes of of individual bank employees or, or groups of employees towards automation and security did you find any indications or evidence of of luddites or of uh, any particular um orientation of 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 Uh, these groups of people.
0: So there is some stuff I think in the um, early chapters, the main concern really was the computers were going to take people's jobs. That was the, the real concern. There was certainly some resistance as you alluded to that, you know, computers couldn't be relied upon, they could, you know, fall over for whatever reason, they may be actually less reliable um people obviously had to be trained to use them uh depending on what they did originally so there was there was resistance in i guess that's the sort of respect you would um imagine there would be resistance just that general kind of resistance to change um and i think yeah you do see um particularly as we move towards the late 70s early 80s um, and security protocols and processes you know, around using computers and being being the one to release payments or instruct and authorize uh, transfers of of money, um, you get, I guess, resistance almost to just how onerous the security protocols can be. And again, that that is tied up with what we were talking about earlier around proportionality. That there's also a balance to be had between you know ultimate security on the one hand and kind of usability on the other. For whether that's for Uh, employees or actually for customers and you do get some employees and obviously not a huge amount of that is recorded in some of the official documents Uh, you do get some of this the sense that this happened and there are specific instances but yeah there was also a little bit of kickback around you know god surely you can trust me was kind of the view but actually the processes that the banks often employed were just to make sure that you know if there was somebody there with malicious intentions and that was managed through their own um, policies and processes.
1: Right. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Um,
0: so what,
1: what was for you the most uh, surprising result of doing
0: this, this research? That's a great question. Um, I guess on the one hand, I thought I would see more incidents. I think I probably thought I would see more recorded instances of where things have gone really wrong. And there are some examples uh, when Swift and Chaps are launched, for example, where there's some downtime, unplanned downtime. Um, But there aren't really, I think you see Barclays saying by the sort of mid 90s that they hadn't experienced any major incidents, uh, apart from some kind of minor virus stuff. So that I guess would be one surprise. I guess secondly, I was surprised just how seriously the banks took computer security, information security from the outset, I thought this would, you know, and I think that's probably one of the the main points of the book, I guess people assume cyber kind of emerged from somewhere in the mid 2000s. But actually, you know, the documents and, and the book tries to show that banks really did care about this from at least the late 50s, early 60s, um, which, again, was, you know, pretty surprising just to see that quite obviously through the documents. I think thirdly, um, what I'd say is surprising is actually the the degree to which there was quite a lot of consensus and continuity between the banks. You know, I think initially people bought like different computers, different brands, there were various competitive brands, but actually most people bought the same kit. Most people had the same ideas about protecting it. Most people <laughs> it, or everyone recognized the importance from pretty early on. And so actually there was there's a surprising lack of disagreement between the banks um, and that's not to say that it's now a competitive thing, in fact, quite the opposite between banks. Um, but that is probably the third uh, surprise. There was just really quite a lot of agreement and uh, it was hard to find instances where there was major disagreement. Um, I think overall as well, the perspective of the banks was there's an inevitability something will happen. And so we need response and recovery plans in place to re- to react. And actually, that has all been formalized in the last actually few years in operational resilience from the Bank of England, some of that regulation that exists. But the banks have been thinking about this probably for half a century. They, they're kind of, let's assume something's going to happen. You know, we'll protect ourselves in a proportionate way. Assume that at some point or other, we're going to be breached or somebody's going to be able to transfer some money or, or steal data or something or other will happen and ensure that we've got plans in place to recover. And that was just quite clearly the approach. And that was probably quite surprising the fact that that hasn't been kind of codified uh, to the degree it has until until in recent years by the bank. Thank you, that was super interesting.
1: Um, uh, one, one next to last question, which is um, there are always things that are left out. Uh, any reflection on what was left out on the archival work or from the Story that you wanted to tell but didn't have the the space to, to tell?
0: Yeah, there's probably two things there. So I, I ended up taking quite a chunk of work out, which was around um, work that the Bank of England and the Stock Exchange did on developing a central gilts office, uh, essentially another you know, payment system, but it was, it was a huge amount of work and actually focused less on the private sector than a lot of the stuff that ended up in the book did. So I think there's probably something there because there were some really interesting... Instances there around um, again, kind of theoretical discussions around what could happen, and some a lot of the conversations around uh, integrity, for example, that we've seen come to fruition in recent years, um, will probably be the very early versions of those are probably being had there. I think if there's one sort of small story which I would like to have dug into more, there was an instance of a um, a kind of traditional inverted commas bank robbery in London in. I think either the late 70s or early 80s, where the robbers were kind of physically at the bank branch, but they had worked out or they'd um, tapped the lines of the alarm signal and worked out what the all clear signal was. And so they broke into the bank through the front door, were able to replicate the all clear signal, which went to the central um, alarm place to ensure that you know nothing was going off. And then they did the bank robbery after that. Um and it was reported in the sunday times i think they got away with some money and in one of the archives i saw um somebody had said to somebody i think in the bank of england had said is this something we should be concerned about and um the main security person there sort of scribbled on that note saying you know have talked to my uh some colleagues and can confirm this is exactly what happened and we should have a think about how we'll protect ourselves against this so i think there's also probably something quite interesting there in, in that anecdote um which I would, I should have, I could have probably found a way to put in, but ultimately, there was, you know, so much to get in, that, it's, as you say, it's always hard to include everything you'd like to include.
1: Well, it, it can certainly make a, a very interesting um, short uh, paper for for one of the journals as, as uh, to bring out some of the themes that that you have. Um, you're now working in, in 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 the private sector. You've you've turned to the dark side. Um, so, um, how are you going to? Um, well, you know, is there going to be a next project or, uh, you know, will, will they allow you to do that? Do you want to do that? And if so, what would it be if, if that, is, that opportunity is there?
0: There is. Um, and yeah, I would do work in the private sector, but I've tried as best to, uh, as I can alongside to keep my academic work up. What I'd really like to do is, so the book focuses obviously on the period 1960 to 1990. I'd probably, well, I'd like to bring that up to the current day um and create you know a kind of more popular um book on on cyber in the financial sector which brings it right up to some to include some of the more recent high profile incidents that we've seen um maybe related or maybe as part of that i think there's quite an interesting history of bank robbery to be written um in all its forms um and that could be a potential project but yeah my i'm lucky that my employer is pretty supportive of of me um pursuing my academic career alongside and I think at some point um, I would I would like to go back to academia full time but I think it's really helpful having sort of foot in each camp to understand sort of the practical considerations of a global bank making decisions on cybersecurity whilst also you know, writing about it hopefully in a way which is uh, informed by um, practical first hand experience.
1: Yeah certainly I mean certainly a, a way that you could repackage that would be very nice it, it would be a popular book on on the evolution of bank robberies from the trunks that we talked about a moment ago to your example of the, of, of tapping into the to the security lines to more sophisticated stuff like what happened with, with Swift and, and this uh, Asian bank and the bank of New York, where, where they able to siphon out a, a very large amount of, uh, of money. So uh, in, in and, and I'm using your generosity of, of, of time. Do Do you have any thoughts on the politicization of payment systems? Um, you know, using them as a tool of, of political economy rather than being a, a neutral part of the infrastructure. And probably here I'm thinking of you know the sanctions that have been put around Iran or Russia, uh, excluding them
0: from SWIFT, which is the international payment Clearinghouse.
1: house.
0: I think that's quite a difficult one for me to be answer to answer to be honest. Um, it's certainly not my area of expertise, but I think, I mean, I think what this gets to is this really interesting question you have around, or question consideration you have around uh, so much of the critical national infrastructure, so important to national security and other considerations, being operated by private entities, and where the line is between um who does what who tells who to do what you know how is security even national security geopolitical considerations managed um in those instances so i wouldn't want to comment specifically on those two examples you gave but i think it gets in it's a super interesting question and it's probably for somebody who knows a lot more about that than i do but i think that that point around um such integral uh, bits of financial market infrastructure and um those financial institutions themselves being so important now to what we considered you know as part of national security that um it's throwing up all these interesting questions that you're to there thank you very much thank you much
1: for, for for your answer and thank you very much for your time and being with us at new books network this is ashley sweetman cyber and the city securing london's bank in the computer age by springer great book on the uh, emergence and evolution of cybersecurity. Um, thank you, everybody, for uh, listening to us. If uh, you are a subscriber, please don't forget to rank us. If you haven't subscribed to NewBooks Network, please do so. And do follow us in um, Twitter, uh, either New Books Network, uh, myself, and I will also add in the notes to the show, um, Ashley's um, Twitter handle, which is also full of very interesting stuff. Ashley, thank you very much for
0: being with us. Thanks so much, Bernardo.